0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. We want you to own a Bible and we want you to have a Bible this morning so that you can look at the passage that we're considering. So these brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those two you marked for you at Matthew 4. Keep that Bible as our gift to you, bring it back with you next week and every week as we look at God's word together. Matthew chapter 4. Angels make an appearance at the very beginning of creation. The book of Job says, the Lord says in the book of Job, When I laid the earth's foundation, the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. The angels were there to witness the beginning of God's creation week, and everything was created during that week. Now I say that because the very first verse in the Bible, as many of you know, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, is in the Hebrew language in which your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, was written. It's something called a, a merism. Heavens and earth are encompassing everything in between. So the angels were there to see the beginning of God's creation, but they were also part of that creation. And so they were created early in the creation week, probably on day one. Sometime later, the Bible teaches that some of them rebelled against God. It happened at least after day number six of that creation week, because at the end of that week, God called everything he had made, including the angels, quote, very good. So they couldn't have rebelled at that point. But the Bible says an enormous red dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and they lost their place in heaven. Now, Michael is an archangel, a chief angel in an apparent hierarchy of angels whom the prophet Daniel Mentions. I'll refer to him again later in today's message. But who is the the dragon? Well, that passage in Revelation chapter 12 goes on to say, The great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So this cosmic battle sometime after the creation week, but before the first human sin, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve... This battle resulted in good angels and evil angels. Two-thirds good and one-third evil of what Hebrews 12.22 calls an innumerable company of angels. So in your outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. But the two main points I refer to good and evil angels. The evil angels are led by the serpent. Remember, Satan was personified as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He's also called the devil, meaning the accuser. And he's also called Satan, which is an English transliteration of the Hebrew word for the devil. The devil and the angels make an appearance in a famous encounter with Jesus. At the beginning of his earthly ministry. So I've given you this background so that you know when we look now at Matthew chapter 4. Where these people, these persons came from. Verse number 5 of Matthew 4. The devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, this is the second of three successive temptations that Satan put before Jesus because Jesus is starting his ministry. And it's similar to what we read about in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve are tempted. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus will succeed and Jesus' obedience will continue throughout his entire life Up to and including his death on the cross. And it's that obedient life that made his death effective for us. The Lord had already resisted Satan's first temptation by quoting Scripture in verse number 4 of Matthew 4. He said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in the second temptation, since Jesus had quoted Scripture, Satan also uses but abuses Scripture. By quoting the first part of your Bible and Psalm number 91. He's quoting Psalm number 91 after the it is written part in verse 6. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm number 91. But Jesus refuses to perform Satan's proposed stunt. To do this would suggest the truth of God's word was on probation, needing to be proved. And so Jesus says, the word of God also says it is written, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. In Satan's interpretation, Psalm 91 says the angels will protect from all harm. But if that's what indeed it teaches, then Jesus and all his followers already believe it, and it doesn't need to be proven. But also, Satan misapplies Psalm 91, suggesting that the words he will command his angels concerning you, they'll lift you up in their hands, you'll not strike your foot against a stone. He's suggesting they mean that angels protect believers from any calamity in the here and now. But we know that's incorrect because for hundreds of years prior to the writing of that psalm, Psalm 91, God's people had experienced trouble and mishaps of all sorts. In fact, God even included requirements in the law that he gave to Moses for domestic safety. For example, a railing had to be put around the perimeter of one's flat roof, which was where relaxation and entertainment of guests would take place in that day. The railing was to prevent a fall or an injury. So to what does Psalm 91 apply? There's good reason to believe it's referring to a time in the future kingdom when the effects of the curse will be reversed and we will be protected from harm, not even so much as stubbing our toe. Now, the passage from Psalm 91 to which Satan alludes is the chief one that's used to teach that each believer has a personal guardian angel that protects him or her from harm. We're going to see a couple of others that are cited to teach that same notion in just a bit, and we'll see whether or not those are used correctly. But what we can say for now is that both good and evil angels are real and active today. But as we've been doing in the prior three messages in our series, Myths Christians Believe, today we're going to see some erroneous teaching that many well meaning believers hold regarding angels and demons. Along the way, we'll see some very accurate and encouraging things the Bible tells us about both. So with that, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we're here. We thank you that we're here because we're here only because of your allowance. And so it is a privilege to be with your people, in your presence, with your word opened before us. We ask you, Lord, now to instruct us from your word, open our hearts and, and, and clear our minds so that we receive your truth, make application of it so that we please you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And that outline that I've asked you to take out, insert it in your program, the first point, I say this, good angels do God's work. Good angels do God's work. Even though Satan misapplies Psalm 91 in his temptation of the Lord, it's still true that angels do God's bidding on behalf of God's people. In fact, in this very chapter of Matthew chapter 4, after Matthew tells us about the three temptations that Jesus resisted, verse 11 says, quote, angels came and attended him, attended Jesus. So good angels do God's work. Now, how? I say in the outline, first of all, they do it on command. The writer of Hebrews explains that the holy elect angels are, they are all ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. They are ministering, serving spirits sent to give that service to Christians, to believers. Jesus said this, See that you do not despise one of these who believe in me. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. Now, one commentator says the angel's purpose is to serve God by attending to the care of his people. These angels in heaven live in the very presence of God, where they wait attentively for his commands to serve the people of God's love. When it says they always see the face of my Father in heaven, the implication is that the holy angels never take their eyes off God lest they miss some direction from Him regarding a task that they're to perform on behalf of a believer. The fact that Almighty God is so concerned about the care of His beloved children that He has hosts of angels in His presence ready to be dispatched to their aid demonstrates clearly how valuable we as children of God are to our Father. Fathom that. Think about that. God has a myriad of servants at his disposal that he commands on our behalf at his will and at his time. But some have taken the reference in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10 to their angels. Jesus said, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see. Some have taken that. That phrase, their angels, to refer to a special individual guardian angel for each Christian. But that phrase, their angels, is plural. And it refers to angels in a collective sense. If it were individual, it would most likely say something like their angel, singular, always sees the face of my Father in heaven. But instead, it's their angels always see. Another passage that's used to teach that we each have an individual guardian angel assigned to us, is one in the book of Acts. And it's the story about Peter being in prison, and a group of Christians are elsewhere, and they're having a prayer meeting asking God for Peter's release. Well, Peter is released, and he goes to that home, but when he appears at the door, no one can believe it's really him. Let me just stop there. It shows our unbelief in prayer sometimes, doesn't it? They're having a prayer meeting to pray for Peter to be released. He is released. When he shows up, they say it can't be. He's in jail. (laughs) So he is released, but nobody really believes it's him. And some say this, it must be his angel. Now that each person had an angel was something that many people believed at the time. The Bible in Acts chapter 12 and verse 15 is not saying that's true. It's simply recording what they said. The nature of the book of Acts itself is that it describes what people did and said, but does not necessarily prescribe those same things for us. The NIV study Bible says of this verse, "Quote: It reflects the belief that everyone has a personal angel who ministers to him, adding the idea that such an angel occasionally showed himself and that his appearance resembled the person under his care. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, but that was a belief that a number of people had. So the idea of a personal guardian angel is not taught anywhere in Scripture. Now, why am I belaboring that? The truth is I'm not overly concerned with whether or not you believe in an individual guardian guardian angel. That doesn't concern me too much. But rather, what I am concerned about is the way in which I've heard guardian angels invoked and referenced. When I've heard people speak of their angel over the years, it's been to explain why they were protected in some way. Perhaps a close encounter in traffic, a ball whizzing by your head, but it doesn't hit you. You trip on the stairs, but you're not hurt. You make it safely home in bad weather and on the list could go. Now, all of these are indeed God's providential protection, and we should thank him for it. But if we believe there's a special angel assigned to to each of us, whose sole purpose is to keep bad things from happening, then how do we explain when those bad things do happen? I mean, what was going on with my angel when that happened? Some angel I got. This guy's asleep at the switch. Apparently. So when I do fall down the stairs or the ball does hit me or I'm in a car accident, what's going on? Where was he when I needed him? You see, whenever you invoke an angel's protection because you avoided some harm, you also have to be able to explain the angel's failure when you are harmed. The truth is God does protect. and He protects in a myriad of ways we never see. We only think about the near misses, the things that we are very conscious, aware of. But what about all the things God providentially does in the normal course of life's events such that we never came near the guy who blew through that red light? Have you ever considered that? How many things are happening around you that you don't even notice that could have been dangerous for you? God's doing that kind of thing all the time in his providence. God is active in the affairs of his world at all times, mostly, though, in the mundane, everyday things. And we should just regularly thank him for his love and his protection, even when we didn't see it and without having have it be in some unusual way. The Bible teaches that God also chooses to allow suffering of various sorts in the lives of his people. So we can explain it if you take that approach. If you take the individual angel approach and your sole job is to do that, well then you have to explain the difficulties, the mishaps. But if you just simply take an approach that says God is in sovereign, providential control of his world and everything that happens in it, then you can thank him for both the good and the difficult, the good and the bad. Those difficult things are always for our ultimate good. And when it happens, it does not mean that God failed. Because unlike the supposed guardian angel idea, God has made no promise that we'll always avoid problems. Job understood this. And that's why when he was afflicted with almost unimaginable suffering, Job could say this. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He fully expected that both are allowed in the sovereign providence of God. Good angels do God's work. They do it on God's command and they do it incognito. I mean, you don't recognize that it's an, in fact, I wouldn't know an angel if I saw one. In fact, the, I I take that back, the only angel I've ever seen, I married. Now, that should buy me something. (laughs) But I wouldn't know an angel if I saw one. The writer of Hebrews says this, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, In biblical times, God sometimes employed an angel in human form to convey a message to his people. We see an example of this in Genesis chapter 18, when God sent an angel to assure Abraham that he would have a son, even in his old age, in fulfillment of God's earlier promise to Abraham. But Abraham did not know it was an angel. He thought it was just a visitor, but nevertheless, he showed respect and generosity and hospitality just because it was the right thing to do. And so the important thing to understand here is that, yes, angels are active in whatever ways God desires, but hear this, we can't know, so we shouldn't speculate. You shouldn't spend any time at all trying to identify when an angel did or didn't do something. Zero, none. Because you can't. Simply know that they are active. Thank God for his protection in whatever form he provides it. We can't know, so we shouldn't speculate, and yet people do it regularly. I had an event uh, happen in my life of God's just goodness to me. I told you about this some years ago. It related to care for my dear mother, who's now with the Lord. But she had contracted Alzheimer's, and she was living with us, and uh, it became impossible for us to care for her. It was a very, very difficult time for us. And we prayed about that and we acted upon that to try to find a suitable place for her care near us so that we could be involved in that care and partner with them. For literally months, I searched and was unable to find a place who would take my mom, a suitable place to, to take my mom. She was in the hospital at the end of 2006, and the hospital was telling me that she, they can't take care of her any longer. She's going to need to come home. But we had had her at home and we didn't any longer know how to care for her. So we were in this just deep, huge quandary. And I made one final call on the afternoon of Friday, December twenty second, two 2006. Now... It's a Friday, it's the afternoon, it's December 22nd. How many people are working that day? But I made a phone call to an organization that says they help people find placements. And as expected, I got a voice message. And I left a voice message, but as unexpected, a half hour later, I got a call back. And this person said, you know, I think I know of a place that might be able to help you. And they made a phone call called me back and said, they have a bed for your mom 15 minutes from your house with an Alzheimer's unit, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I went the next day. My mom was released from the hospital. She went to this place, and she lived the rest of her life there 15 minutes from us, and it was a great blessing from God. Now, a few weeks later, after the holidays, I tried to reach that individual who helped me with that. I wanted to thank them again. I also wanted to give them a gift. It was a profound blessing to us. But I could never get a hold of that person. In fact, it was almost as if that person didn't exist. Nobody at the place knew who they were. It was the weirdest thing. Now, I kind of threw my hands up and said, Okay, thank you, Lord, for helping me. I don't know what that was, but I know it was you. And I thank you. I relayed that story to a couple in North Carolina, just as I've relayed it to you. And as that got to the point where I talked about not being able to locate the individual who helped me, what do you think they had concluded? That person was an angel sent by God. Now, was the person an angel sent by God? I don't know. And that's the point. I don't speculate about it. I don't need to speculate about it, because in whatever form God provided his help, it was from the hand of God, and the thanks go to God, and I don't need to locate a particular person or reason. The point of Hebrews 13.2 is not that we do good deeds of hospitality because it might be an angel that we're serving. No, we should do good deeds just because. But it's saying in doing those good deeds, we never know what role we may be playing in what God is doing in the larger picture. And the fact that we never know. Should friends restrain us from guessing at what angels are doing? And instead, we should just take comfort in and be thankful for God's loving activity on our behalf. Good angels do God's work. But in your outline, evil angels Oppose God's people. C.S. Lewis said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So the demons are just fine if you don't believe in them. But they're also fine if you believe in them, but accord them too much respect, too much attention. Now, I don't think anyone here would fall into the first category of failing to believe in evil spirits. But I do hear people talk in a way that gives the devil much more than his due. Some Christians talk almost as if Satan were all powerful. They'll say things like, the devil has really been having a field day in my life lately. Or Satan's really been kicking me around this week. One author said, lots of people seem to think the devil is the equal and opposite of God, like the dark side of the force. But Satan is a created being, and God is infinite. Satan is less than a speck compared to the infinite one. If anything, Satan might be compared to Michael the archangel, who we saw referenced earlier. Who's another created being. A.W. Tozer said, we tend to think of created beings in a hierarchy. For example, on the bottom are amoebas, and then above them garden slugs, and above them fish, then dogs. Above dogs are monkeys, then humans. Slightly above them are angels, and slightly above angels is God. But God is infinitely exalted over his creation. The most glorious angel in heaven is closer to a caterpillar in its being than it is to God. The angels are creatures made by the creator, and that includes the evil angels. So that Satan and his minions are, as we're going to see, dependent on God for everything they do. So lose the idea if you have it that Satan is this all-powerful force and he's almost an equal force to God, nothing could be further from the truth. So even though evil angels oppose God's people, remember what I say in the outline, their work can be resisted. The Bible says that straight up in James chapter 4. Resist the devil... And he will flee from you. You see, friends, Satan can only work with what he's given. He cannot force the believer into anything. Nothing. So that means we have no recourse to say something like, or think something like, or imply, the devil made me do it. When I had a a real job as a computer consultant, at one of the places I was assigned, I met some Christians who had a weekly Bible study, and I started attending with them. The leader of that Bible study was a guy named Cass, who I learned very early on was quite mystical in his approach to the Christian life. He believed all the myths that we're covering in this series. One time he and I were talking about the spirit world and how angels and demons do their work, and Cass told me he could identify particular demons, and he told a story to illustrate. He said he had a long-standing problem with anger, and he just couldn't get a handle on it, and he had no idea why, but he suspected that a demon was causing his anger. It was confirmed to him that he had a personal demon tormenting him, when he was in a mall one day, and there was this horrible smell all of a sudden. He had showered, so it wasn't him. He looked around to see from where it may be originating, but there was no one in his immediate area. He rebuked the the demon. It went away, but then he was in another store, and it was there Again. He was sure this was the presence of his demon, so he rebuked it again, and it went away, but only to return a bit later. This happened several times that day in the mall, and Cass said he could tell other stories of the presence of his particular tormenting demon. And I said to him, so you believe you have a demon of anger? And he said, yes. And he was convinced that the solution to his anger was in defeating the demon somehow. Now, let me just stop there. Do you see how a false understanding of the problem will give you a false diagnosis of the solution? See, I've got a demon of anger, so now I need to rebuke this demon. I need to all none of these are ways that the Bible tells you to, to deal with it. And so I told Cass, I not I know the name of your demon. And he looked surprised and he became very attentive. But I disappointed him, though, when I said the demon's name is Cass. (laughs) And I explained that he was responsible for his anger, and if he's a Christian, neither Satan nor his demons have access to him, as we're going to see, but Cass would have none of it. The devil made me do it is not only an explanation, but it's a convenient one since it removes responsibility from us. Now, I trust that none of us would directly blame a demon for our sin, but we do find other ways to deflect from our responsibility. My spouse. So, instead of the devil made me do it, just replace my spouse made me do it. Look at the equivalence there, I'll just move on. My job, my health, my circumstances. Friends, Satan may well use all of those to tempt us. But he has no power to cause us to act. The work of Satan can be resisted. Because, I say in the outline, we have power to overcome. The Bible says famously, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, the one who is in you, meaning Christians... The souls of those who don't have Jesus are a veritable playground for the devil as he has full sway over them. That's a different story altogether. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have God the Holy Spirit, Satan has full access to you. The Bible says Satan is the God of this age. But on the other hand, Satan must ask permission to do anything in the life of a believer. We see this at the beginning of the story of Job. It starts out in chapter 1 telling us, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Before you go on reading, just think about that for a moment. God created all of these beings, and they are all responsible to him, and they are all coming to present themselves Before him, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Notice it's God who calls attention to Job because God knows Job can handle whatever he allows to come Job's way. So sometimes when you have a barrage of things happen in your life and you're saying, why me? If you're a child of God, you should actually have great confidence in the fact that God would allow these things to happen because the God who's allowing these things to happen has actually prepared you for them. He knows what you can handle. He knew that in the life of Job. The Lord said to Satan, Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Notice, God sets the very parameters of what Satan's allowed to do. Satan can go no further than what God allows him to do. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You see, friends, Satan is a tool of God. And when he allows him to afflict a believer, it's for God's glorious purposes to make that believer rely on Christ, become like Christ, and display display the power of Christ in him. One has said, no temptations do hurt or harm the saints so long as they are resisted by them. But that power we have is, of course, not our own, but rather it's God's. Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. As long as God is on our side, Satan is impotent against God's people. Did you hear that? As long as God is on our side, Satan has no power against God's people. And how long will God be on our side? Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? I am convinced that neither death nor life, notice, neither angels nor demons, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why can we go forward with confidence? Not because we're confident in ourselves, but because we are confident in the one who has called us, who is involved in our lives, who has given us his Holy Spirit, who has promised to protect us. Jesus on one occasion said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon. We have our interceding high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to protect us. Satan might want to do all kinds of things to us. He can't. Because he's under the power and the control of our God. So devils, demons... The Bible teaches, I'm going to give you a litany of things that the Bible teaches about how subservient they are to the true and living God. Judges chapter 9 and verse 23 teaches they unwittingly serve God's purposes. In the Gospels, as Jesus was performing his miracles, they were terrified of Christ and the Gospel. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus commanded them, they obeyed Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, they obeyed the 12 that Jesus sent out and the 72 that he sent out later. As we just read, they cannot separate believers in Christ from the love of God. They can be restrained by the power of the Holy Spirit. They've been judged already by God and they will be again in the future. The work of Satan can be resisted. We have power to overcome and I say in your outline, we have knowledge to escape. You see, the Bible says we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. We know the deal. We know the deal with him. We know the deal with his evil demons. We know what they're trying to do. We know the limitations on what they're able to do. We know all of this. And so as part of our ability to resist... And the power that we have to overcome is this knowledge that we have. Consider what we know. Satan can't harm you without God's permission. The truth is, friends, the devil, Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He was making the point that Satan is on a leash and he can only do what God says. We know what Satan wants because we know what God wants. Satan wants the opposite. The works of the sinful nature are all opposite, love for God and love for others. So we're aware of Satan. We're aware of what he attempts to do. We have confidence that he can't do anything beyond what God allows him to do. So here's one of the things that means. Contrary to what many well-meaning Christians think, Satan cannot slide his way in or take up residence within you on the sly. Have you ever heard people say things like that? They take passages like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, which we're going to look at in two weeks. Do not give the devil a foothold. And they take that to mean that somehow if you're not really careful, you could just not be on your game for a minute and Satan's just going to slip into your mind and he's going to start controlling your thinking and affecting your actions. And he's wily, and so he can do this, but the Bible tells us we're not unaware of his schemes. So he's not as wily as you think he is, and he thinks he is. It doesn't work that way. He can't just slide in underneath your consciousness somehow, and take over your mind. But many Christians have believed this. Back when I was a teenager in the 70s, <laughs> you know, not listening to rock music was a really big deal. You know, in my Pentecostal church, in my uh, Christian school, don't listen to rock music. One of the reasons you don't listen to rock music, it's going to affect your mind, it's going to affect you in all kinds of ways. I mean, we, we had seminars that gave us scientific evidence that rock music kills plants. Just think about what it's doing to your brain, you know? So, those kinds of things. But some of you may be old enough to remember that there was a whole phenomenon called backward masking. Do you know what that is? So this is back in the days when they had albums like vinyl. And if you... And on some of these, if you played them backwards, then you would hear all kinds of sounds. And then in these seminars that I was subjected to as a kid... The person conducting the seminar would find these phrases that were being stated, these kind of satanic messages, when you play the thing backwards. So don't play it backwards. I mean, mean, as as a kid, I'm just thinking, why would anybody play it backwards? (laughs) I heard a joke some time ago that says, you know, you might be a fundamentalist if... The only rock music you've ever heard was played backwards (laughs) in a seminar on why you shouldn't listen to rock music. But the idea was somehow this is going to slip into your mind. And people get these ideas about all kinds of things. They're just afraid. They live life as Christians, afraid of what's going to happen to them. You know, so, look, I'm not advocating yoga, okay, I know where yoga comes from and all of that. But if somebody if somebody asks you to go to an exercise class that has, like, breathing techniques, then don't worry that a demon inhabited you. <laughs> because yoga uses these breathing techniques. But I'm telling you that people, people do that. They're fearful that Satan's going to somehow slide in. He doesn't operate that way. He can't operate that way. We must be willing participants or he has no access. When we sin, indeed, he has been victorious in that moment, but we've given him that, that access. So angels oppose God's people. Their work can be resisted and their work is often disguised. The Bible says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now he's disguised at least to believers unbelievers will follow him without disguise and so what second corinthians is teaching us is about false teachers and so be careful in the teaching that you that you take in and compare that to holy scripture and Make sure it's consistent with Holy Scripture because Satan will bring people into the church that will teach false doctrines and they will look good and they will sound good masquerading as angels of light. But in fact, they are false. They're, fact, false teachers. But hear this. As long as you're not fooled by the package, package, you cannot be fooled by the false message. If you're not somebody who just takes somebody in because they look good, which the Bible has instructed you not to do, You take them in, you receive their teaching because it's consistent with what God says. So myth number four, friends, is that angels can be recognized. They can't. You don't know them, I don't know them. What we do know is that they are God's servants to do his work. And we thank God for that. And we thank God whenever he protects us, however he protects us. And then conversely, demons cannot be recognized and demons don't need to be worried about very much because they're on a leash they can only do what God allows them to do. You need not worry that they're somehow going to inhabit your mind or affect you in some way unawares. So here's your take home truth. Taking from the words of Martin Luther and um a mighty fortress is our god we ne- we need not fear for God has willed his truth triumph through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and comforts us because you tell us about not only this world, but the unseen world, the realm of the spirit world. And you tell us that all beings and all things were created by you and are under your control. Thank you, Lord, for the comfort that that brings to us. Because we are in Jesus Christ, because we have a relationship with you because of him, we have your Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, help us to be people who are ever aware of your providence in our lives every moment of every day, thanking you for your protection, for your blessings, even the difficult things you bring into our lives because they're all designed for your good purpose. And Lord, with regard to how you do that, help us not to waste any of the time that you have given us trying to identify things that are not ours to see. And with regard to demons, oh Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that on the cross those demons have been disarmed, that they have no power over your people. Help us to rejoice in that and to never give the devil more than is due, but instead give you the praise and the glory and the honor.